Greetings, this is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. In our last teaching, we touched on the fact that Paul had begun his third missionary journey. In Acts chapter 18, verses 22 through 23, we read, And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. While Paul was in Jerusalem and Antioch, you will remember that Priscilla and Aquila had met Apollos. This was a man who had heard about and had been teaching the message that John the Baptist gave, a message of repentance. But he had not yet heard about Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. So Priscilla and Aquila spent time in sharing with him about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ This man, Apollos, was teachable and was soon able to defend the gospel very effectively. Having been instructed, he then traveled to the region of Achaia, which would have included Corinth. And as we closed our last session, we read in verses 27 through 28 that when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we pick up where we left off with Paul's third missionary journey. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 19, and I will read verses 1 through 7. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. This is a very interesting passage. You will remember that when Paul passed through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem, he made a promise. In Acts 18 we read, When they asked him to stay a little longer with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. He has now kept that promise. So when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he just 
happens to meet 12 men who also knew about the teaching of John the Baptist, but they had not yet heard about Jesus, nor had they become believers in him. Once again, we find that these men had incomplete information. Therefore, the Apostle Paul was the perfect one to share with them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't know if they had learned about John the Baptist's teaching from John, or a disciple of John, or from Apollos himself before he learned about Jesus. But one thing we do know is that God knew all about these men, and I am convinced that it was God who orchestrated their meeting with the Apostle Paul. As soon as he began to share with them and about the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were immediately receptive to that gospel message, were converted and baptized, both by water and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, being evidenced by the ability to speak in tongues. This is actually something very important for our understanding. We need to understand that Apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. It is the Spirit who imparts life to the one who has believed on our Lord Jesus Christ. This is confirmed in the following passages. Romans 8, verses 9 and 16. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Warren Wearsby adds this explanation, which I think is helpful. Paul asked the twelve men, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The question was important because the witness of the Spirit is the one indispensable proof that a person is truly born again, and you receive the Spirit when you believe on Jesus Christ. Their reply revealed the vagueness and uncertainty of their faith, for they did not even know that the Holy Spirit had been given. As disciples of John the Baptist, they knew that there was a Holy Spirit and that the Spirit would one day baptize God's people. In other words, they believed in Jesus as the Messiah but they did not understand the significance of his death and resurrection or the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth and life of the church. These believers were incomplete. They had repented, but had not yet trusted in Christ. In truth, they were believers only in the sense that they were seeking to believe. So, let me ask this question. Why then did Paul ask about their baptism? 
We will find in reading the book of Acts that a person's baptismal experience is an indication of his or her spiritual experience. God's pattern for them, then and also for us today, is given in Acts chapter 10, verses 43 through 48. Let's take the time to read that passage now. It says this, To him all the prophets witness that through his, Jesus' name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So in other words, sinners hear the word, they believe on Jesus Christ, they immediately receive the Spirit, and then they are baptized. Dr. John Stott adds this, The norm of Christian experience, then, is a cluster of four things. Repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. Though the perceived order may vary a little, the four belong together and are universal in Christian initiation. The laying on of apostolic hands, however, together with tongue-speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus as to Samaria, in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit, that New Testament does not universalize them. How wonderful it was that these 12 men were also included into the kingdom of God because of God's great love and mercy. And because of the faithfulness of God's servant who is willing to speak to any who would listen to the life-changing, hope-filled message of Jesus Christ. Well, let's continue now with Acts chapter 9, turning now to verse 8. And when Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. So, for the next three months, Paul faithfully taught in the synagogue, expounding on the Old Testament messianic passages, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the fulfillment of these passages. Week after week he taught, but once again there were those who rejected the message, and therefore they rejected the message giver. The Bible says that there were those who 
with hardness of heart, spoke evil of the way to those who gathered to hear Paul's teaching. In those early days of the Christian church, Christians were called members of the way. I think that this may have been drawn from Jesus' declaration in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when the opposition grew, Paul once again departed from the synagogue and began meeting in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know if Tyrannus was a believer or not, but he did make available to the Christians the use of his school during the hours of 11 a.m. through 4 o'clock p.m., which was the hottest part of the day, when the rest of the population would be resting. Bible says that Paul taught every day in that place. He taught them the scriptures, and he taught them about Jesus Christ. Paul remained there for two more years, teaching them in obedience to the Great Commission. And the end result of that vitally important ministry is that all in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey today, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. While Paul was ministering and serving, something else, something very exciting was also happening. We read about it in Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and and the evil spirits went out from them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now I want to emphasize that the Bible says that the miracles which were taking place were unusual miracles. In other words, This was not a common thing, but was unique to Paul for this time and this place for a specific purpose. The Life Application Bible Commentary explains further. It writes, the miracles had a threefold purpose. One, to demonstrate God's ultimate power and authority in a city where Satan had a stronghold. Two, to authenticate Paul as an apostle and a spokesman for the one true God, 
and three, most obviously, to demonstrate compassion and mercy to those in great need. I think it is also important to point out that only Jesus, Peter, and Paul were given this kind of great power and that this power came from God. The handkerchiefs and aprons mentioned here would have been the sweat rags and aprons that Paul would wear while working as a tent maker. Paul always supported his own ministry through this kind of work, although there were times when he did receive love gifts from the churches that he had planted earlier. However, the power of God was so powerfully upon him that these garments were brought to those who were sick and also to those who were demon-possessed. It was the power of God that delivered them from diseases and the power of Satan, setting them free from their bondage. Yet once again, Satan sought to duplicate this work in, in order to distract the population from the power and glory of Christ Jesus. It's always his pattern. If he can't hinder the work by direct opposition, he will try to spoil it by imitation. So once again, let me quote from the Life Application Bible Commentary just to to help us understand the bigger picture of what was taking place here. Ephesus was a center for black magic and other occultic practices. The people would create magical formulas to give them wealth, happiness, and success in marriage. Superstition and sorcery were commonplace. Many of the Ephesian converts had been involved in these dark arts. So, what we have here are some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Men who were Jews but not followers of Jesus Christ. But they had been observing Paul and the miracles that were being done in the name of Jesus, they, they must have thought that there was a formula or a charm or an incantation for exorcism which included the name of Jesus. <laughs> Therefore, they would say, we exorcise you by Jesus, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. However, there is a problem with this in that they did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ nor did they know him, who he is, and what he had done. And since these men had no personal relationship with the Savior, they had to invoke the name of Paul as well. Luke cites a perfect example of what can happen when the name of Jesus is misused for one's own purpose. Prophet glory. There was a man, Sceva, who was described as a Jewish chief priest who had seven sons, and these sons decided to engage in this practice. Now we need to understand that according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who had recorded the names of all the priests until the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that there was no record of a priest by the name of Sceva, and so we can surmise, then, that he was falsely representing himself to the members of the synagogue in Ephesus. Well, anyway, 
His seven sons were also practicing exorcisms, and they decided to invoke the name of Jesus and Paul as part of their incantation. The result is very dramatic and costly to to these men. Let Let me read it to you again. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I would say that these men and others like them learned a very important lesson about the power and authority of the mighty name of Jesus. And we need to understand that had this exorcism succeeded, it would have discredited the name of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the church in Ephesus. God used the scheme to defeat Satan and to bring conviction to the believers who were still involved in magical arts. Instead of disgracing the name of Jesus, they even magnified his name and caused the word of God to spread even more rapidly. We read in verse 17 that this account was shared far and wide. And all who heard about what had happened were dramatically impacted. The Bible says that fear fell on those who heard about it. And therefore the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified through that, throughout that region of the world. As a direct result, thousands believed in Jesus Christ, confessing their sins and becoming witnesses of Jesus Christ. Their conversion was confirmed in what they did as a result of their new life in Christ. Remember, these were people who had actively participated in the occult. They had all the stuff and idols and books and things that were directly connected to Satan and the occult. But their repentance was real. And their devotion to Jesus filled their lives. Therefore, they took everything they had that was connected in any way to their former practices and brought them to the city center to burn it all, utterly destroyed, wonderfully saved. I like the observation and application that one commentator makes regarding this. He writes, Some of the people refused to believe, and they maligned Paul. One of the obvious lessons from Acts is that Excellent ministry always meets exceptional opposition. Believers who are serious in the quest to live faithfully for Jesus and to proclaim the good news of the gospel will encounter stiff resistance, possibly even severe persecution. No wonder Jesus told his followers to count the cost. If you remember... In the book of Act, or the book of Luke, chapter fourteen, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and and he he was just laying the situation right on the line for them. Scripture says this, beginning with verse twenty-five. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and Consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a heavy price to be paid for faithfulness. But the cost is nothing compared to the glory that awaits those who determine to trust and obey the Lord. Following Christ is expensive in terms of time, effort, energy, or material resources. Have you counted the cost? More importantly, will you pay the price? I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Listen to his encouraging words. Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So let us follow their example. Let us put away from us those things that are not of God, even as the Ephesian believers did. Confess your sin to the Savior. Call upon him, trusting in his promise to forgive. Additionally, cleanse your life from the things that you have held on to much too long. And let us be faithful in service, in hope, and in perseverance as we wait for that glorious day when we shall see our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. Heavenly Father, your word calls us to 
surrender our lives before you, to trust in you with all of our hearts, to love you first and foremost above all others. No, you do not call us to hate another, but what you call us to is to place you first in our lives. Even as your word says, Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 6, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto us. Lord, we seek you. And we know that if we seek you with all of our hearts, we will find you. For that is also your promise in your word. I pray that you would reveal to us the things that perhaps we've been holding on to for too long, things that have no part in the life of a Christian. Pray that we would remove them from our lives and ask, oh God, that you would just separate us from the things of this world that we might be separated unto Christ. Make us your holy people, O oh God, we pray. Cleanse and purify, strengthen and lift up. May we become even more faithful in life, in love, in testimony, in faithfulness. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all one word, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. But until next time, my friend, continue to be his faithful witness, serving him, loving him, proclaiming him with a holy boldness and confidence in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Persevere, my friend, because I'm telling you, soon you will behold him. And won't that be a glorious day?